0: This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to
1: stand with God? Come what may. If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's
0: the way it is.
1: And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome everybody. I want to talk about Joe Biden, the former vice president who wants to be our next president. He gave a speech just a few days ago unveiling his economic vision and declaring an end to the era of shareholder capitalism. You know, it's never a good thing when a would-be American president wants to talk about ending capitalism in any form. That's not good, especially when we have the whiff of socialism in the air to the extent that we do. Listen to what Joe Biden had to say.
1: And it's time corporate America paid their fair share of taxes. We thought in our administration we should lower the tax in the high 30s to 28%, then lower it to 21. I'm going to raise it back up to 28, provide hundreds of billions of dollars to invest in the growth in this country. And the days of Amazon paying nothing in federal income tax will be over. Let's make sure their workers have a power and the voice it's way past time we put an end to the era of shareholder capitalism. The idea that the only responsibility a corporation has is its shareholders. <clears throat> That's simply not true. It's an absolute farce. They have responsibility to their workers, their community, to their country. That is a newer radical notion.
0: Oh, yeah. You didn't build that. It's just the reappearance of Obama's. You didn't build that. You owe your country. You owe your workers. You owe your community. Well, what's he talking about? Breitbart points out in place of shareholder capitalism, Joe Biden is proposing a more inclusive system built on the power of labor unions and on, quote, black, brown and Native American communities that he said had been left out of economic prosperity. That sounds like redistributing the wealth, doesn't it? Sure, that's exactly what they're on board to do. Now, something else I want to get to. I'm going to get into this in greater detail throughout the week, but I at least want to touch on it here. Stanley Kurtz over at National Review had written an article on this. Breitbart followed up, and more people are beginning to notice this. We have done a number of shows over the years about this AFFH rule and Agenda 21. This is the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Regulation, and the bottom line is to try to basically... Abolish your private property rights and move you into cities. Isn't that a fantastic idea during a pandemic? So we've done a lot of shows on that, but I want to share a little bit of what Stanley Kurtz writes about. His headline is Biden and Democrats are set to abolish the suburbs. Abolish the The suburbs. How would this actually happen? Because when Ben Carson came in as the head of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the whole idea was he was going to work really hard to get rid of the AFFH rule. He hasn't gotten rid of it. So let me give you some of the details on this. Uh, He says that what he has found in studying Joe Biden's housing plans is both surprising and frightening. He said, I expected President Biden would enforce the radical AFFH regulation to the hilt, and that is what Biden promises to do. And that would be more than enough to end America's suburbs as we've known them. But what surprises me, he says, is that Biden has actually promised to go much further than the AFFH rule. Biden has embraced Cory Booker's strategy for ending single family zoning in the suburbs and creating what you might call little downtowns. In the suburbs. Oh, doesn't that sound quaint? Combine the Obama Biden administration's radical AFFH regulation with Booker's new strategy, and I don't see how the suburbs can retain their ability to govern themselves. It will mean the end of local control, the end of a style of living that many people prefer to this city, and therefore the end of meaningful choice in how Americans can live. Shouldn't voters know that this is what's at stake in the upcoming election? It's no exaggeration to say that progressive urbanists have long dreamed of abolishing the suburbs. Initially, these anti-suburban radicals wanted large cities to simply annex their surrounding suburbs like cities did back in the 19th century, and then the big city could fatten up its tax base. Once progressives discovered it had since become illegal for a city to annex its surrounding suburbs without voter consent, they cooked up this strategy that would amount to the same thing. This de facto annexation strategy has three parts. Use a kind of quota system to force economic integration on the suburbs, pushing urban residents outside of the city. Number two, you close down suburban growth by regulating development, restricting automobile use, and limiting highway growth and repair thus forcing would-be suburbanites back to the city. And then thirdly, you use state and federal laws to force suburbs to redistribute tax revenue to poorer cities in their greater metropolitan region. And if you force urbanites into suburbs, force suburbanites back into cities and redistribute suburban tax revenue, then presto, you've effectively abolished the suburbs. Obama's radical AFFH regulation puts every part of progressive's abolish the suburbs strategy into effect. Once Biden starts to enforce it the way that the previous administration, Obama's did, originally meant it to work, it will be as if America's suburbs had been swallowed up by the cities they surround. Fantastic. So look at what's going on in some of these big cities right now. You want to be a a Minneapolis suburb swallowed up by Minneapolis, and you can have a bunch of social workers help you out when you have a police matter. How about Baltimore? That sounds like a great place to not have, you know, your own local control and on and on and on. So if this happens, they're going to lose control of their own zoning and development. They'll be pressured into a kind of de facto regional revenue redistribution, and they'll even be forced to start building high-density, low-income housing. The latter, of course, will require the elimination of single-family zoning. Well, that's what's already happened in Portland. With that, the basic character of the suburbs will disappear. At the very moment when the pandemic has made people rethink the advantages of dense urban living, the choice of an alternative will be taken away. Now, this is bad enough, but on top of AFFH, Biden now plans to use Cory Booker's strategy for attacking suburban zoning. AFFH works by holding HUD's community development block grants hostage to federal planning demands. Suburbs won't be able to get the millions of dollars they're used to in HUD grants unless they eliminate single-family zoning and densify their business districts. AFFH also forces HUD grant recipients to sign pledges to affirmatively further fair housing. Those pledges could get suburbs sued by civil rights groups or by the feds if they don't get rid of single-family zoning. The only defense suburbs have against this two-pronged attack is to refuse HUD grants. That will effectively redistribute huge amounts of suburban money to cities. But if they give up their HUD grants, at least the suburbs will be free of federal control, But the Booker approach, now endorsed by Joe Biden, may block even this way out. Booker wants to hold suburban zoning hostage not only to HUD grants, but to the federal transportation grants used by states to build and repair highways. It may be next to impossible for suburbs to opt out of those state-run highway repairs. Otherwise, suburban roads will deteriorate and suburban access to major arteries will be blocked. AFFH plus the Booker plan will leave America's suburbs with no alternative but to eliminate their single-family zoning and turn over their planning to the feds. Slowly but surely, suburbs will become helpless satellites of the cities they surround exactly as progressive urbanists intent. Now, President Trump had just put out on Twitter recently that he may end the AFFH housing regulation. Well, wait a minute. I thought that was the whole reason we had Ben Carson in there as head of HUD, that he was going to get rid of AFFH. We talked about that before Trump even got into office. Except That hasn't happened. Carson, as Kurtz points out, suspended enforcement of the rule early on. Then he tinkered around for three years trying to come up with a replacement. But what he developed so far is something you might call AFFH light. While this possible replacement removes many of the regulations excesses, Carson has so far retained the most egregious feature of AFFH. He still wants to use HUD money to gut suburban single-family zoning. And how Carson can even think about taking this stance in the the face of President Trump's explicit directive to reduce and remove excessive federal regulation is a mystery. It will be very tough, he says, for the president to make a political issue out of Biden's housing plan so long as his own cabinet secretary is talking about killing suburban single-family zoning with AFFH. Folks, it's time to get on the horn. It's time to let President Trump, know what you think about this because you 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 haven't seen anything yet in this country. If the progressives are able to do their urban planning the way that they've strategized through the Cory Booker strategy and the AFFH rule, and it is a disgrace that Trump hasn't gotten rid of it yet. It needs to go, and here we are again—more dire plans from the progressives. But there's some good news. We'll tell you some good news when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. That's the theme of our new campaign. And our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles both to new believers and to those who've been praying many years for their own Bible in countries like China, India, and Nepal. Imagine strengthening the faith of a new believer in China like Washi, a 30-year-old wife and mother of two who overcame illiteracy two years ago and is yearning to read her very own Bible. Or Jerish, an 80-year-old man in India who followed Hinduism for decades, but is now a new Christian determined to follow Jesus Christ. You can join the Janet Mefford listening family in sending a Bible for only $5 or 20 for $100. Call 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as 199 dollars per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855 560 Six five twenty five sixty one. That's eight five 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 six five twenty five sixty one. Or visit LibertyHealthShare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/ dot slash jmt.
1: This is Janet Mefford today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome back. Well, there is some good news concerning that disturbing U.S. Navy policy that prohibited active service members from attending in-person religious services. The Navy has now revised the policy and ended the ban to get back in line with the Constitution's guaranteed freedom of religion. We're going to get some of the details now from Mike Barry, Deputy General Counsel and Director of Military Affairs for First Liberty Institute. Mike, so great to have you back. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, thanks. It's great to be with you.
0: Great. Well, congratulations on the reversal of this policy. This obviously affects a lot more Christians than your client, Major Daniel Schultz. But tell us a little bit how this whole situation unfolded.
2: Well, it unfolded a little over a week ago. On June 24th, the Navy issued an order, uh, very surprisingly and, and shockingly, and uh, nobody was really given a heads up about this, and the order actually banned service members from being able to attend indoor religious services. Uh, but at the same time, the order allowed service members to hold social gatherings of any size. Uh, and then of course, there was other guidance issued by the military that allowed uh, service members to participate in, in protests and, and that, those sorts of activities. so I think that anybody who was paying attention would quickly come to the conclusion that the navy was telling its its troops, you know, you can have a party where people are free to bring their own beer but they can't bring their own bible. <laughs> And, and that is, uh, you know, beyond ridiculous. It's actually unconstitutional.
0: Well, it is. And we keep seeing this double standard all the time, it seems. I've heard this kind of situation going on in multiple locations across the country where stores are fine and you can do this and you can do that. You just can't go to church. Talk a little bit about Major Schultz, though. Well, how did this impact him directly?
2: Well, Major Schultz, uh, is, he's actually an Air Force major, but and, and so that might confuse some people, but anybody who served in the military knows that uh, we, we frequently like to cross-pollinate the services. So he's an Air Force major that's actually assigned to the Naval postgraduate schools. He's serving under a Navy command, and that's why he's subject to this, to this uh, or was at the time, subject to this order. And... Uh, Major Schultz is a devout Christian. He's a very active in his community and in his church and he's a, actually he's a worship leader. Uh, he and his wife both are worship leaders. Uh he, he uh if I recall correctly, uh Major Schultz does vocals and his wife does the piano. Uh and so they were you know looked upon and relied upon by by their church to to help lead worship and that includes during the COVID-19 pandemic, when their church was still doing streaming services, uh, he was able to at least go to the church, and, and, and he and the other members of the worship team, and perform the services that were then streamed. And then uh, when Governor Newsom in California began allowing people to go back to church and, and worshiping in person with all the appropriate you know CDC guidelines in place— uh, he, of course, they, just like everybody else in the country, were thrilled to be able to do that again as a community. And then, like I said, out of the blue, this Navy order says no, <laughs> you can't. Even if, even if your governor, your county, your city or whatever allows you to, the Navy is telling you you can't. And if you violate it, you could potentially be court-martialed.
0: Did they have a specific policy or anything in place to refer to to say this is why we're doing this for religious services but not for stores?
2: No, there wasn't really an explanation given. Uh, at least, at least, nothing outlining why they thought there was such a problem with religious services. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I suppose you know, if you want to read between the lines, you could say that they, for whatever reason, they've bought into this mythology that that you're more likely to catch uh, or spread. Uh, COVID-19 in church than you are in a house party, yeah. uh, which is ridiculous.
0: Or a riot, for that matter, or a protest or something out on the streets. If you're engaged in CHOP in Seattle, then you'll be fine. But if you're at a church, apparently that's the end of the world.
2: Yeah, one of the most laughable ones really is the uh, the, the, the laundromat uh, uh, comparison, you know, and they say, well, churches are different because people go there for the purpose of 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 congregating and being there for a, a an extended period of time with other people and, and coming into contact with other people, but at a laundromat, uh, it's you know you're just sort of in and out. And I and I sort of scratched my head and said, any it, it, you know whoever's coming up with this has clearly never spent time in a coin operated laundromat. Yeah. You're stuck there for hours on end <laughs> with nowhere to go, and you're surrounded by other people. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I I definitely think there is uh, some. Uh, you, you know, whoever's coming up with these have, have, have clearly not been in the reality that some of us have been uh, throughout our lives.
0: Yeah, good point. What about the argument that you made here in this letter, the violations of the Constitution, the violations of Rifra, what were they?
2: Yeah, so I mean, beyond the, the, I think, the common sense arguments that you and I have just been discussing, you, you, you know, when you get into the legal arguments, the Constitution, there is no pandemic exception to the First Amendment. The First Amendment is the First Amendment. Uh, and actually, I remember at the, at the be- very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, that's something that first liberty. We, we wanted to remind people, because we've heard a lot of, of rhetoric about, well, this is, you know this is an emergency situation, this is a public health crisis, and we've got to put the First Amendment on the back burner, and we said, "Nonsense. Yeah. You know think about this. Go back to your history books, which nobody appears to do anymore. Yeah. Um, our founders, when they were drafting the First Amendment and the re- and the other amendments to the bill of rights it 's not like they were strangers to times of crisis and pandemics uh, and, you know and 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 even emergencies right that 's the world in which they lived was full of of, of uh, you know whether it was from the British or from the spread of disease or uh, you know just just Living life in the in the uh, sixteen uh, the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries on a daily basis was far more dangerous than anything we face today, True. and yet they still understood how important it was to have the free exercise of religion and so we pointed out to the Navy that there is no pandemic exception to the First Amendment in fact uh, there 's also this thing called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which uh, clearly protects the right of all Americans. Uh, and, and it requires the government. If you're going to substantially burden somebody's religious beliefs, you're going to have to show a compelling government interest that's tailored by the least restrictive means. And saying you can't go to church or we'll court martial you is not the least restrictive means. There are certainly many other things that you can do to help sp- to prevent the spread of a virus beyond banning people from going to church, especially, again, like we said, if you're going to allow them to go to the laundromat or throw a house party or attend a protest.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And violators being court-martialed, as you just mentioned. How were they justifying this? I know that they had referenced this particular section in the U.S. Code, but what was that section? How were they possibly trying to say, you deserve to be court-martialed if you go to church in person?
2: Well, in, in the military, there are different, sort of different types of directives that can be given, and there are some that uh, violating them can result in – I guess you might refer to it as administrative uh, action, right? A slap on the hand. You, you know, They'll put something negative in your, in your record or something like that. And then there are other orders that the, the technical term we use to describe them is called their punitive orders. In other words, if you violate it, you can actually be punished. And that's what this order clearly stated in black and white. This is a punitive order, and violation of it will can result, could potentially result in charges being brought against you at a court-martial for what's called Article 92, so that's the section of the U.S. Code. It's, it's 10 U.S.C. Section 892. That's the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and that is the part of the UCMJ that says if you violate a lawful general order, uh, which this one uh, purported to be, uh, we don't think it was lawful, but it was at least a general order, uh, then you can be court-martialed for violating an order. And so, you know, and of course, I know that, you know, naysayers will say, well, this is the military, you know, and, and and we have to have law and order in the military, and people have to follow orders. That's all true. But there's one giant presumption there, and that is that the order issued is lawful. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody would 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 have any qualms about disobeying an order to, to kill innocent women and children, right? Yeah. Uh, go and, and burn that village to the ground, regardless of who happens to be there. Uh, any service member would rightfully say, I think that's an unlawful order, and I'm not going to obey it. Uh well, similarly, if you issue an order and the order itself violates somebody's constitutional rights, then it, you know it, that order would be on its face unconstitutional. And, and there would not be a requirement that, that you follow it because you can't order somebody to do something that violates the Constitution or violates the law. Right. And that's exactly what we had here. And First Liberty Institute pointed that out to the Navy, and we're very thankful. I, I, I do want to make sure that we commend them because this was a pretty fast turnaround. It does, if, you know, much like turning an aircraft carrier, getting the entire U.S. Navy to reverse course is no easy task, but yet they did so in, in about a week. Which so great. Uh, that was uh, definitely commendable on the part of the Navy leadership.
0: Yeah, so what, talking about the updated policy, they've now clarified what service members can do as far as attending church. What does this new policy now say?
2: Well, I, I think the, in the easiest way to, to describe it, the new policy simply says you can go to indoor religious services now as long as those services are cdc compliant so if they take the appropriate measures with distancing and sanitizing and and and, and what you know if if masks are required then so be it uh, and as long as you're complying with those uh, measures, then you can do it. And, and, and I think that's fair, right? I mean, right. We, we certainly want a common sense approach. There, nobody's asking for permission to be reckless. They just, they're just want to make sure that uh, you know, our service members, they, they serve for a noble cause and a noble purpose. And we know, and having been a veteran myself, I know that when we serve, when we raise our right hand, we willingly give up some of our rights and some of our freedom. But we don't give up religious freedom, and we have to remind the government of that sometimes. you know, The old saying is the price for freedom is eternal, eternal vigilance, yeah. and that's what it requires is to be vigilant in reminding the government uh, you're, you're going too far. You're taking too much authority.
0: Well, that's right. And and as I mentioned before, there have been so many cases like this across the country, but it's a little galling when you see the U.S. Navy actually putting something so draconian into effect. And it's just wonderful, actually, that they have changed course on this policy and now put into practice more reasonable measures, I would say, to keep people safe, but not to prevent anybody from exercising their freedom of religion. Mike Barry from First Liberty Institute, firstliberty.org. Thanks a lot, Mike. Always great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. All right, you bet. Take care. We'll be right back. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: This is where we are now. The Texas Division of Emergency Management is now advising state residents to wear masks at all times, even at home. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Why then have groups like the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons said that wearing masks will not reduce COVID-19? And even when the World Health Organization recently walked back its original advice against the widespread use of masks, it admitted the use of a mask alone is insufficient to provide an adequate level of protection or source control. So are the masks really about our health or are they also about control as many people fear, especially when we consider that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is about to declare its epidemic phase over 10 consecutive weeks of declining COVID-19 mortality. So we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Andrew Boston. He's a trained clinician, epidemiologist and clinical trialist with experience as associate professor of Family Medicine Research at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and has written a great piece about this over at conservativereview.com called Masquerade COVID-1984 and Evidence-Free Compulsory Masking. Andy, great to welcome you back. I hope you're not wearing a mask. We are a mask-free zone here. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I well, I mean, I, I actually, had a,
3: actually had an office encounter, physician in office encounter, and and there, uh, even there, as soon as they could sit me apart, uh, I took my mask <laughs> off. So yeah, it's 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 terrible. It's 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 become, you know, sort of a a, a uh, one of the stigmata of submission. I, I, I it's awful. I'm sorry that, to put it in such stark you know language, but um, it's it's it, it really is. They're they're, you know i I discovered a a, a paper a very one of these brutally honest papers from the past the real real past but it was it was it was almost contemporaneous with the um with the with the aftermath of the nineteen eighteen uh flu pandemic, which was a real pandemic right. i mean depending on how you measure it about a hundred to a thousand times more lethal uh than covid nineteen has played out yeah. so a uh, hundred times in terms of of raw mortality, but then when you look at something like loss of of life years, because it, it was brutal to the young, it was brutal to the healthy young, including military recruits, you know, from World War One. Um, so, a, a, in addition to the elderly, so so it, it was just infinitely worse. But there was a there was a very aggressive masking campaign in hotspots in the United States. Uh, one of them was was San Francisco, and a and a very thoughtful piece was written by the then uh, uh, executive officer of the California State Board of Health, who who also was an infectious disease expert. And he said, he just wrote this brutally honest observation in the aftermath in 1920. He said, the masks contrary to expectation were worn cheerfully and universally, and also contrary to expectation of what should follow under such circumstances, no effect on the epidemic curve was, was to be seen. Something, something was plainly wrong with our hypotheses. Wow. You know, would that, would that uh, we had this kind of honesty th- th- these days. I, I mean, it was just, it was striking. He also went on to do a, a, a laboratory experiment. This was his review of the epidemiologic evidence. And, you know, back in the day then, they basically had gauze to use as a material for For um, for masking, and you could see obvious flaws if you you know what gauze looks like, but what he did is he layered it, layered it, layered it, and he actually was able to reduce the penetration of certain bacteria, which, you know, again, may not be analogous to larger particles, but but it was at such a cost, even in this brief experiment. He said, you know, by the time we got up to the, to the levels to reduce the bacterial infiltration, the people couldn't breathe in the bath. Of
0: course, <laughs> you know, of course. Just,
3: I mean, and, and so fast forward to a meta-analysis, one of these analyses of, of, of a pooled analysis of, of, of data of the gold standard that we use to assess any therapeutic in, in, in medicine. Um, it's not infallible, but it's the best method we have. It's called a randomized placebo-controlled uh, study. So 10 individual studies were conducted basically between 2008 and, and, two, and 2016. Very interesting designs. One was basically masking or no masking to Hajj pilgrims. How, how oh, wow! <laughs> Hajj pilgrims. Um, there, were, there were seven uh, uh, household uh, studies where either the person that was sick, and this was all based on influenza, which is a perfect analogy to, to, to COVID-19. Um, so either, either the household contact uh, was, was masked, the, the, unexp- the, the people who weren't sick uh, were masked, or both were masked. So seven studies of basically studying household transmission, and then two studies were done amongst uh, students uh, on, on university campuses during the flu season to see whether the mask versus the unmasked would, would, would develop uh, laboratory-confirmed influenza. All 10 of the individual studies were, were negative, but, you know, because they're small studies, what, what, what investigators will do is they'll aggregate them. So what if there were little small effects in each study that you would only see when you aggregated the data? So remember, <laughs> the individual studies are null. When they, when they pool the data to give them what's called more statistical power, the, the pooled result was still numb. I, I, I mean, and, and, this, and this study, to, air, to make this even more strong, this meta-analysis of 10 negative gold standard randomized placebo-controlled trials was published where? In the CDC's own house journal called Emerging Infectious Diseases. When was it published? It was just published this May.
0: Unreal. I,
3: I, I mean, so Janet, you can walk through literally... A hundred years of consistency from an observation about the horrific 1918 uh, flu pandemic by, by a dedicated uh, public health official from California, made a culpa admitting something was wrong with our theory, you know, um, and and then doing a little, a small experiment to see, you know, what could we have done better, you know, making a thicker gauze mask at the time, you know, but 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 acknowledging even that experimental evidence that, you know, the people could wear such a mask or, you know, outside in the public. No. Well, you know, so 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 it's just it's just very disturbing that we're being told that if if you don't wish to wear a mask as they're advertising now, you know, cheerfully on Fox News, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, you know, cheerfully telling us to basically don a mask as soon as you walk out of your house. I, I, I mean, this, this has this doesn't have a scintilla of scientific evidence to support it. And in fact, right. the evidence that we do have is negative.
0: Well, here here's an example of this because I was recently on an airplane and, and this just was driven home to me in every way it could be driven home. All of these orders, I was in Chicago, so it's very draconian up in Illinois right now. You have to wear a mask by city order. Now they've got travel. you got to quarantine if you come in from one of the states where the cases are rising, all that kind of stuff. But you come to O'Hare, you've got to stand on your goofy little dot in the TSA line so everybody's six feet apart. We're all wearing masks. There are barriers everywhere. When you go up to the agent, there's a plastic barrier like we find in all these restaurants now. you got all that stuff going. The minute you get on the airplane what happens? You're sitting inches away from total strangers and everybody pulls their masks down. And I thought to myself, this is either a plague of of gargantuan proportion, like you would believe if you were walking through the airport, or it's no big deal when you get on the airplane. That's, That's what you're being told when you get on the airplane, because you can't have both things being true simultaneously.
3: Right. Well, it's it's it, it just it, it actually it's a great vignette because it does capture so much about it. It, catch, it captures the absurdity of it. But but it, it also it also captures, you know, the, 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 the lack of, 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 of practical measures. So, for example, um, forget about the masking uh, on, on a plane. Um, what about just having. Um, a, a, vet, a much better uh, uh, air filtration system exactly. that, that actually ki- kills circulating viruses. Now, yes. such systems apparently do exist. I, I would say one of the things that's a, a horror is, is, is keeping kids out of school. Why not, why not put some uh, one of these air purifiers that, that, that work by uh, electrostatic uh, forces that, that, that can, that can uh, strip proteins away, maybe deactivate viruses, certainly can do that for bacteria, Why not why not invest 400 bucks to put one in classrooms instead of the crazy things they buy for schools? And, you know, but 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 it's just it's just the we're, we're dealing with 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 lack of evidence based practice on so many levels. I mean, all we have to do is think about how none of this has ever been done. With with seasonal influenza or, or 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 bad year seasonal influenza outbreaks. Yep. None of this has none ever of it. been done. The oh first- I know.
0: Hang on just a second. We gotta pause and take a quick break, Doctor Andy Boston with us. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free heartbeats for moms in crisis in the USA. When a mother chooses life, preborn centers are there to help with the baby's needs, counseling, and so much more free of charge. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855 855- 402 All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
3: Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering healthcare, you'll receive so much in return.
0: It's an amazingly rewarding experience.
3: You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid.
0: It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again, or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time.
3: So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today.
0: I would say go for it.
3: Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's
1: mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet.
0: Dr. Fauci says you should wear a mask in part because it's a symbol of respect. Well, I, is that what it's all about? First, it was 15 days to slow the spread. That's why everybody had to be locked down. Now it's all about the masks. You got to wear a mask everywhere you go. Compulsory mask wearing, except as my guest says, there is still no controlled evidence that supports masking, especially in non-healthcare settings. Dr. Andrew Boston is with us, who is an epidemiologist and clinical trialist. So let's talk about this a little bit more. This idea that Dr. Fauci keeps changing his mind Right. Do, do you have problems right. with that just as somebody who sure, is, is an expert sure. he, in this field? Yeah, he's 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 his um
3: ambiguity has real consequences. It just sows confusion and frustration and and then anger. And 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 then he seems to be upset that people are upset with him. Well, yeah. why don't you you know <laughs> why don't you think about what you're going to say and its impact instead of worrying about how people are getting angry at you. And, you know, I mean, take comfort in, 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 in frivolous things like you being considered the most sexy man and leave it at that and and, and leave us alone. I I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's just awful what he's done. I'm I'm, I'm being flippant about it, but, but it's just awful what he's done. He sows confusion. He sows alarm. Um, You know, we've talked about this before in terms of his sowing alarm, about pediatric covid-19 yep. which is a complete non problem uh, uh Janet your your listeners should know the CDC just did two updates one for its uh, seasonal flu uh, uh surveillance database one for covid-19 the, the the problem is they don't the age groups for kids don't overlap exactly so for covid-19 for some reason they have a age group 0 to 14 so neonates to 14 years old for flu it's 0 to 17 and then above 17. But it, it, I, I did an extrapolation. So if you figure that, well, 80, it's pretty linear, the risk. 80% of the, of the flu, 0 to 17, is equivalent to the COVID, 0 to 14, in terms of you know, just this linear risk. 0 to 14 through June 27th, the last time the CDC updated its database, for COVID-19, 29 deaths. Every death is tragic. I'm not minimizing that. But zero to 14 again, extrapolating. the total zero to 17 was 185, So I extrapolated to 150 zero to 14 influenza deaths, this regular regular seasonal flu season, five times as many deaths, approximately. <laughs> and, and, and we're not closing. We didn't. We, we went through the whole. Seasonal flu season. You know, it starts earlier. It starts. It starts in the fall through the winter. Yep. Schools weren't closed down. No. Uh, for, for, for for the for the death toll that that was mounting from regular seasonal flu uh, amongst school age children. Well, people are just um, you know,
0: freaking out, though. And, and then you have Dr. Fauci saying that it's a false narrative to take comfort in a lower rate of death.
3: So I, that was just a bizarre statement. Totally bizarre. When you sort of tease it out to give him, a, uh, to give him you know, just sort of a modicum of credit, what he's saying is, well, you know, the cases were rising and those are going to translate. Well, that has turned out to be uh, translating to death, but that has turned out to be uh, largely untrue because, as Ron DeSantis pointed out the other day, um, you know, the, 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 the most common age, the single data point most common age now in Florida for, for quote-unquote case positivity was age 21. Well, those <laughs> people are at like zero risk. Right. Um, the whole age distribution had shifted from like a median age of 55, I think, down to about 35. That's a big decrease in the risk uh, of dying from COVID-19 based right. on all the evidence that's in there. Well, let me ask you. say there's one, yeah, one yeah. positive thing. Uh, people in the state of Washington have sued the governor and the state for their draconian edict. Um, and, and I think this is, a, I don't know how far it's going to go. It's it's in, a, it's in a state court that has statewide uh, jurisdiction. Uh, but, but they use the right language about, first of all, they cited the lack of evidence. But they also said that it was
0: invasive and coercive, yeah.
3: um, and, and, I, and I, I hope they at least get a hearing.
0: Well, I do, too. It's really important to stress that, too, because if absent any real science and and we are always hearing, you know, follow the science, make sure you're following the science, except for them, the science keeps changing all the time. And then they just make it up as they go in many cases. But what about this issue of wearing masks just from a social perspective? Because you were saying that at the beginning of the interview that that you do have some concerns about the social control angle on all of this.
3: Yeah. And that's part of the lawsuit too. There's a whole shaming aspect to, to this. And I, and that's why, that's why I'm really interested in following up what happens with, with the arguments. I hope they get a chance to argue this in court that, that, that there's no there's no uh, especially given the absence of evidence, how dare the government shame people who don't want to be coerced into wearing a mask when they're out of doors, where there's basically zero transmission of this virus anyway, under any circumstance. Yeah. Um, you know, all the transmission studies that have been done uh, have failed to show any significant transmission out of doors.
0: So why are they still freaking out about it? What do you think is really behind all of this control? Is it related to the election coming up and wanting to tank the economy is, I'm more?
3: sorry to sound you know, I'm sorry to sound so cynical or political. You know, to be accused of that, there's no other rational reason for it. I, I, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's no scientific evidence in so many of the things that have been done, starting with lockdowns. Um, you know, the, the evidence is in now. I mean, you know, compare lockdown societies to non-lockdown societies. The virus does its thing. First of all, most of the lockdowns occurred. After, after there was mass uh, transmission of the virus in, in these communities. Um, you know, so those, those data are in. Uh, you, you could, you can compare the curves in different societies and you can see that they're, they're basically, they're basically the same, uh, in, in terms, in terms of deaths. Um, and, 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 you know, in South America, for example, you can look at Peru versus Brazil. Peru locked down very hard. They're barely coming out of it. Uh, Brazil was was very, uh, you know, lax, and the the death curves are exactly the same. Uh, (laughs) Sweden is kind of in the middle. Uh, If you adjust for age from Sweden, they actually look at least as good as us, if not better. And even without adjusting for age, you know, Sweden has a huge population of people 85 and above. But even if you don't adjust for age with with Sweden, uh, they they certainly did better than places like uh, Spain and Italy and England. Right, uh, right. You know, with just as old a population to protect. Well, what so, about
0: California? What about California? They talk about Florida and Texas and Arizona all the time. But California was much more strident on shutting things down and their cases are going up. Better. Yeah,
3: yeah, they're not doing any better. Look, and that's the thing. You know, we, we the virus is out there. And until, um, you know, since and look, I, we've also talked about the issue of vaccination. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not a good track record. I look I hope it's better with 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 SARS-CoV-2, with COVID-19 versus the two other coronaviruses that cause serious respiratory infections. Um, SARS-CoV-1 from 2002, 2003, and, and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus from, from 2012. Um, we've had a lot of time to work on those viruses, and there's no viable vaccines. Uh, we had a couple of interesting candidates, but you know, when, when people uh, animals, I'm sorry, it didn't thank God it didn't reach humans. When animals who, who appeared to be immunized by these vaccines were then given the final gold standard test, which is they have to be infected with live virus, the the um immune reaction uh was so overwhelming that it caused a very severe lung damage. Uh so uh you know, we, we that's the experience with those with those viruses. So mm-hmm. so to to this date there are no successful human vaccines against SARS CoV one and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So I- I'm not saying that we, that the technology won't be perfected this time, but, you know, it's, not, it's hardly a guarantee. And there's something very interesting out of Sweden now. Uh, you know, the, the Karolinska Institute there, their, their major teaching research institute and also trains, uh, they also have a lot of clinicians that work there. It was just a fascinating interview by a clinician researcher there who's saying that, Um, she thinks Sweden has basically achieved herd immunity through its policy because what she's noticing is that the ICUs and the wards are emptying out And yet, you know, Swedes being Swedes and having had enough of this, the social distancing has deteriorated dramatically. There are crowds on beaches, et cetera. And the the laboratory finding is that even people who don't even appear to generate antibodies by by the available testing, by the routine testing uh, that that were exposed, that were mild cases, they they develop cell-mediated or T-cell immunity that's extremely robust. And it's it's not even typically assessed in these in these large population surveys. And so she's saying that, that um, it looks like there's 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 both clinical and laboratory evidence that the population is close to or at herd immunity.
0: Well, you know what? This is why I so appreciate all the work that you've been doing. You've put a lot of this out on Twitter, and you've written this great piece over at conservativereview.com on Masquerade. Yes, it's spelled M-A-S-K, and I really appreciate it because I think what people want more than anything else is solid science and facts, and that's what you've been providing for people. So I encourage people, go to conservativereview.com and read the article. Also, andrewbostom.org is his blog. Dr. Boston, thank you, as always, for being here. Appreciate it so much. Take care. Bye. All right. You take care as well. Thank you for being with us here on Janet Meffer Today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer Today was brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Thank you so much.